Hey, I'm Brett Gornick. I'm Jason Lobig. Welcome to the Live Better Podcast. Best day ever. We are coaches, trainers, retreat leaders, and wellness advisors, but didn't start our careers doing this. Jason worked in public accounting, and I worked in corporate retail until starting our dream business in which we help people from all different industries pursue their best day ever every single day. The goal of this podcast is to interview both each other and other professionals making an impact on the world on how wellness is the fuel to do whatever it is in life you want to do better. This podcast is about teaching people to actively pursue their purpose and how to use self-care to do it. We're here to show you how the best day of our mindset is available to anyone at any time, no matter your circumstance. It's your choice and we're here to encourage you. Have the best day ever. Brett and Jason here, Live Better Podcast, doing it virtually with a dear friend of ours who has been a part of our community for a while. She's come came to one of our superfood dinners. Uh, we've been connecting for a long time. Tiffany Louise, we are super excited to have you on the show today. And um, how are you? Where are you? And what's going on? I'm feeling I'm feeling good today. I I've been saying that I I take the medicine that I preach. So I am right there with everyone else who's navigating this and I'm doing everything that I recommend people do. So I'm I'm hanging in there. We were talking before we started that you know, I feel a little um I I'm aware of my privilege right now. I live in Chicago and Michigan and I happened to be in Michigan when all of this started. We I was actually supposed to record with you guys and I had this intuition that this was going to turn out not great. Um with the coronavirus, I was feeling a little under the weather and I thought, do I really need to take this trip with an, a c- compromised immune system if this thing does blow up and I canceled the trip and then I I'm I'm glad I did cuz here I am and here we are. So, doing well. Oh, that's great. I mean, yeah, it's. <laughs> I think everybody at this time is is counting uh, their blessings and also just like understanding different ways to navigate what's what the current situation is. And a lot of what you do is to help people build up resilience for when things like this do happen or when um, you go through times that you might have not planned. So. Um, let's dive into some of the, some of the work that you're currently working on, um, whether it's seeing clients or, um, putting out what you do on social media, what are some of the the current projects that you're working on? And then let's, let's go into how it all started and, uh, how we are, where we are today. Yeah. So as of now, um, my, my, the main offerings that I have are private coaching, um, and I've been, you know, built this business over the last three to four years and have a really great caseload of amazing clients. Um, but what I've found to be interesting is that my work sort of transitioned into doing a lot of relationship coaching. So I, I've worked in every sort of level of care in mental health and substance abuse treatment over the last 20 years. Um, and Really what I found is that my my work is about helping people change their behavior. I'm a, sort of a behaviorist and I started out with applied behavioral analysis very early on in my career, learning what motivates people, where we get shut down, how we find ourselves with stumbling blocks and not moving forward and how to make those changes. And so this is something that I have been, you know, training for for decades now. 
And I saw that, you know, for many years I worked in a clinical setting and it wasn't available to the public. And so I created my coaching practice, um, not operating under my license doing clinical therapy, but coaching people so that I could be a part of the conversation. I could give access to my work to more people, not just people who are in my treatment center. Um, and serve. So yeah, so that's one amazing way that I support people. And and as a function of what I found was helpful to people in coaching, I'm building a um, course so that people can access support at a lower price point than a private coaching pra- pa- package um, and serve. So I have, you know, my course I'm working on, I have my coaching, I have my um, journal, guided journal book that was published last year. Um, around this time. And so that's serving people. Um, so I'm just navigating the space to find ways to meet people wherever they are, help them create the healthiest relationships with themselves and with other people. Because what we know about happiness and well-being is that you can do all the things, but if you don't have some sort of mastery around how to create healthy relationships, your happiness, well-being, quality of life will suffer. So I believe this is one of the key gatekeepers to creating a well and um, connected life. And most of us don't learn this. And in in fact, we learn the opposite. We learn the opposite of healthy um, in terms of how to relate to ourselves, our own thoughts and others. So in a nutshell, that's my work right now. When you, um, when you talk to somebody, um, a client, somebody seeking this information, what are, what are some of the first steps? So like you said, we have been conditioned for kind of the opposite of how we should treat ourselves. Sometimes that leads to how we should treat others. Um, some of us were fortunate fortunate enough to grow up in positive, loving relationships with our family. Some of us weren't. Um, and, and we've been talking about this a lot with people um, on the podcast and just in general about how, you know, we're conditioned in for years and years before we come to this point, this realization point where it's like, is this who I am? Is this who I want to be? And it takes a lot of work, a lot of self-work to one, acknowledge that. And then two, actually start to take action because then you're fighting against the grain of how you've been groomed for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, maybe. So what what are like the first few steps when somebody sees you and they're just trying to like get back to this happiness that we deserve? Yeah, you bring up a lot of really good points um, about fighting against our um, training. So you guys know this because you're trainers. Um, But when you have muscle memory and you've been lifting weights and building muscle in a certain part of your emotional behavioral framework, framework, it's strong, right? Some of us have been building codependent pathways and, you know, anxious attachment pathways for decades. And our knee-jerk reactions, the way we respond to others and to ourselves are very well-grooved. So just like you help train people in their mindset and in their physical abilities, having support um, is in many, many forms while you navigate the discomfort of the change is so critical. So one, when someone's working with me, they've already got one you know, avenue of support. So I take a look at their life, sort of like a 360, you know, view. Um, that's the one thing about, I switched from my undergrad in psychology and decided to go into social work in my graduate work because it's a much more person in environment focus rather than what's wrong with the individual, let's diagnose them. 
It's more of a let's look at what's happening all around them to see how that's influencing their behavior. Um, and so I take this approach when I'm working with people. And the the one, our pain points are actually our pathway to healing. So the first step that we take is to take a look at what's not working. Where are your stumbling blocks? Where are you weak? Where um, And not weak in a bad way, but weak in a you haven't built muscle there. Um, so what's not working? Where are you finding that you're having discord in your relationships? Where are you exploding rather than responding from your wisest self? And, and take a look at what's not working. Take a look at what you need around you to support you as you start to make these changes. Because um, the research shows it takes about 66 days for a behavior um, to become a habit. So a lot of us set out super inspired. We have this aha moment. We have a retreat. We have a course, We whatever. And we get all excited. We learn all this information. And then we come against the really difficult path of implementing it. And it's in the implementation that we need the support. My analogy is also like bump, the bumper bowling. You know, you need those um, rolls that they stick in the gutter so you don't kind of veer off course. Um, and, and why people struggle with change is not that they're not capable of it. It's that they don't prepare themselves for the path and for the inevitable discomfort and resistance that arises when we change. Um, so that is sort of how I approach it in the beginning with people taking a look at what's not working, where they're stumbling, and then, um, thinking about the ways in which we can get as much support around them as possible. Tiffany, I want to, I want to kind of bring that full circle. We, um, I think Brett and I help people handle fear in a very physical way often, mm. um, whether that be trying new activities. Uh, I think we expose people to, to new things, especially as adults. Like if you didn't grow up on a surfboard or a snowboard as a kid, those types of activities are fearful for adults. Um, but as it, re- as it relates to emotional fear, and obviously those two things are not mutually exclusive at all. Um, this time has brought up a lot of it, it's I think it's forcing people to confront a lot of those emotional weaknesses because it does end up being a runaway train because we can't go do the things that normally distract us unless you turn to things like alcohol or other substances. <laughs> Obviously, that can help us sort of alter our current reality. But how do you how do you help people identify those weaknesses if they don't have the emotional intelligence or awareness to identify that they even have those triggers? Or that they have those like um, kind of conditional biases that somebody that has never taken the time to try and be self-aware, you know, they just think that this is my normal. I'm I, I'm just an anxious person. Brett talks about like um, identificational, like I am anxious or like I am fearful or I am weak or I am scared. Those things are are very conditional, but I don't think to your point, like a lot of people do any type of pain tracing or any type of self-awareness work without a prompt from like a coach or a course. So like even before you get there, how do you get somebody to even start the process of, of emotional awareness? Great question. And I agree with um, everything that you said. So th- I, again, I come back to the idea of the trigger, the pain point is the gateway to that information. So we are always moving towards things that feel better and away from things that don't feel great. It's just how we're wired. And so oftentimes the motivation for change is discomfort and the discomfort is the pathway. If you can operate in a space of curiosity to find those thoughts that are control that are like literally the 
Oz behind the curtain of your behavior. So it is hard when we are not in in practice in the practice of inquiry and curiosity. I always say that we are much more likely to be curious about what's happening with other people than we are about what's happening with ourselves until we learn to build that muscle. So if someone is feeling off around you, you're going to ask like, what's going on with you? I, I can tell that something happened, you know, with your husband and you're going to get curious because we're curious about who we love and who we care about. So we want to take the pain point as the gateway. Where am I having discomfort? And then we want to try to the best of our ability to step into a spirit of curiosity. Curiosity allows us to see what we're experiencing without judgment. And then we get curious, what am I telling myself that is creating this experience for me? Where did I learn that? Where did I first hear that? And that is the gateway to checking in with if that story is actually one we would consciously choose if we wanted to. Because I say we pick up things like lint. We pick up stories from our family. We pick up stories from the, you know, Disney movies we watched when we were a kid. I believe we pick up stories about how we date and how we relate to other people from the freaking bachelor that's been going on for 20 years. It's a terrible (laughs) example. Um, So we pick this up and it's like clinging to us, but we, we haven't consciously chosen it. So when we get in inquiry, when we get in curiosity, we have the ability to say, where did I come up with this? Where did I catch this from? And do I want to choose to keep it sticking to me? Um, And yeah, if you, you know, don't have the support of someone to hold up a mirror, you can do this for yourself. That's why journaling is, you know, one of the most amazing, free, remarkable healing tools ever, because you can have that dialogue with yourself. Um, So yeah, that's where I think we need to start is to get curious, to know what it is, what we're, because when we know what we're thinking, it's no longer unconsciously driving our car. By nature of viewing something, we become conscious to it, and then we have the ability to move with it and adjust. What we don't know and we don't understand, um, we can never change. When you're talking about, um, you ta- you mentioned journaling, and um, so I'm going to put on my trainer hat, and then I want you to put on your hat. So when we say, see a client that say they train with us. Twice a week, once a week, whatever it may be, right? That's not enough to reach the goals that they're setting out. Mm -hmm. So we will either create a program for them or monitor the workouts, the running, the training, the mobility that they're doing so that every session that we come into, it's not having to make up for what they didn't do, but it's building on the stuff that they did. And I think that that's really like the importance of a coach and a trainer You can't be with somebody 24 hours a day. So when we're talking about the journey that you set on with either a client or just somebody that's going to listen to this podcast, outside of journaling, and and, uh, journaling is definitely a key point, what are some other things so that you can do this on your own without it kind of like suffocating you? Because I think a lot of people get into this, they'll listen to this show and they'll think about it for a day or a week. Um, It might consume them for a little bit. And then they get this analysis paralysis of being like, well, I, I think I love this person because, you know, they're very similar to my mom and, and that's how I learned to love. And then I watch The Bachelor and then it does this. And then, uh, you know, I think about <laughs> a Disney princess, whatever that might be. So what are some practices that people can be doing um, 
whether it's a daily basis, um, and, and this is essentially, like you said, it's relating to the muscle. It's like we're building this mindfulness muscle um, in a way in which it's proactive and healthy because you can go into the gym and squat with bad form. And yeah, your legs might grow, but when you're 40, you can't walk. So there's no point to that movement. Um, so what are some ways we can flex that muscle in a productive way without it causing extra anxiety um, so that we can we can come to these clarity points? So this might be in between sessions. This might be something that everybody should just be doing on a daily basis, weekly basis, monthly basis, et cetera. Great question. Um, and I'm going to give sort of the prescription um, for and use the example for someone trying to get sober. So what you have to think about is what is what is the pain point and what is what is the goal, right? So if you're trying to get stronger, if you're trying to have more peace, if you're trying to have less anxious thoughts, if you're trying to eat healthier, what, whatever your goal is, your prescription is going to look different. Um, but I'm going to use the example of helping people heal from addiction, which is something that I did for 10 years. And it's one of the hardest things there is to change. You're literally fighting against your wiring in your brain that tells you you need something that is making your life miserable. And so what I helped people do was take a look at if this is where I want to get to, what do I need to put around myself? So they weren't, um, in many cases, they were talking to me every day. Um, if I, when I was running groups, but a lot of times when I was coaching towards the end of my career, they were seeing me individually once a week. So what, what do you do in the in-between time is your point, right? You're not going to be with your trainer all day long. You have to map out where your pitfalls are. So again, I know this sounds like focus on the negative, but your, where you struggle gives you all the information you need. If your witching hour for loneliness is Sunday nights and you find yourself getting on social media and walking through everybody else's highlight reel, and then that sets you up to calling the ex, that's really good information because that's when you need the most support. So in the example of healing from addiction, we would look at, are you meeting with your coach? What are the free or you know easy access points in terms of cost? areas of support. That's one of the reasons people get down on AA and talk about it as sort of like this old school, you know, model. First of all, it's not, it's really a, you're able to flex with wherever someone is, but tell me where there's another program that is free and available every place you go on the planet earth. That's why it works. It allows people access to support for the in-between times. So is there a support group that you can jump in online? That's why, even though I'm not a proponent of it, but that's why some people find success in some of these Weight Watcher type programs because there are um, group components and access to support and accountability. Um, but I just don't like the whole mindset behind it. But my point is finding the things that scratch the itch that help you overcome your triggers. So if it's, you know, you get home from work and that's your that's your pain point. You feel exhausted. You um, want to cope by eating food that makes you feel comfortable. Then that's the point where you need to insert something else. So how do people take the support you're getting them in their coaching session or individually with me is they, they find ways to create um, anchors and lighthouses throughout their daily life. They get curious about when they need it the most and they make sure that in vulnerable times when they know themselves they can do better, they have that access. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. I think one thing that, you, that you're driving home, which I think is, you know, I'm reviewing this in my head as I go by and, you know, 
I, I don't have an addiction necessarily to anything negative, but there are definitely, and, and I think what's cool about what you're saying is from a performance perspective, it's the same thing. So I'm just like going through my head being like, when are the days, times in my day where I feel a little lull? When are the times in my day where I might revert to something I know isn't the healthiest option, whether that's, you know, food or consuming media? And if you could put triggers in, in those places where it's like, instead of me, you know, going on social media before I go to bed, if I put my book, and I was reading this in, in, a, in a book recently, it's like, instead of you consuming social media before you go to bed, if you literally put a book on your pillow when you wake up in the morning, and it's on your bed, when you lay down, you're like 80% more likely to read the book. So it's like setting up yourself for success when you have those pitfalls. And I think one of the one of the things that I, I love about what you're saying is is like literally having to look in the mirror and say, these are the times in which I need the most improvement. It's the low-hanging fruit. And you fix those, everything else will boost itself up. And you can stack a lot of great habits back to back. So it's like, you know, when I put that book down on my bed, it's like I every time I lay down to bed, I'm going to at least read a few pages. So it might not be. 30 minutes of social media, it might be 10 minutes of reading and 20 minutes of social media, which is a way better 30 minutes spent than consuming for 30. So I love that. I think I think more people, in all honesty, need to face themselves with that, regardless of the situation, whether it is, you know, that they've gone down addiction or they are trying to perform. And everywhere in the middle has opportunity for growth. And it's, it's awesome. And, and Jason and I, you know, we, we go back and forth on this a lot because within our business, we have different strengths and we're really good at checking each other on those so that the one thing doesn't run away because I want to go too fast or we don't get anything done because Jason's a little bit more of a perfectionist and we're able to check each other on those things. And so I think having the support of others is something that is really important. So the question I want to get into next is just that. Um, one of the things that we talk about a lot is that you are the product or the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And you were talking this a, a lot earlier about how the environment in which you are in really is, is crucial to where you can go and who you are. So what are some pointers or some ways in which you can proactively change the environment so that you as a person can flourish with with that being such a pivotal point in the way in which you act. Yeah, absolutely. So proximity is power. And what is closest to us, not only is there an energetic frequency to it, but we absorb it. And so I think one of the things that I see is that a lot of us think we can be innocent bystanders of what we consume, but it it, we can't. It literally makes up the lens through which we see the world. We are interrelated, interconnected people. And so we think that we can watch The Bachelor for an hour and it's just harmless, but that it's teaching us unconsciously how to show up. And then we unconsciously show up in that way on the date and feel like we have to prove and we get into that energy. And so um, I think that, you know, the way we think about, um, What's around us is it can come in three main categories are people, places, and our things. Um, so, depending on what it is that we want to create in our life, like you talked about, if the book is closer, you're going to reach for the book than you are for your phone. 
And one thing that I've been saying a lot lately and reminding people during quarantine, during this pandemic, when all of our coping skills are up and sometimes they're not the healthiest, is to, to meet yourself with compassion. You're doing the best you can. And none of the needs you're trying to meet are wrong. It's not wrong to want to break. It's not wrong to want to zone out in social media. It's not wrong to want your brain to have, you know, a time to go a little numb or to just, you know, laugh. But what we have to do is we have to take a look at other ways in which we're coping and say, are they serving me? So when we think about people, places, and things, those things that are closest to me is what I'm putting in my you know, in my news feed, the movies that I'm watching, the conversations that I'm having with my girlfriends, are they productive? Are they serving me? They might need a need, scratch an itch, but do I have a consequence to pay? Are they helping? So one thing that I work a lot with clients, um, you know, if I'm working with a client who's trying to create a healthy relationship, I ask them to be conscious of all of the ways in which they're connecting to, with their friends, commiserating about how awful dating is and how awful <laughs> men are. Because when you're in that energy and you're talking about it all day and everyone's giving their example of the asshole on the dating app, that becomes your reality. And so when I challenge them and say, oh, eps, no, I disagree. There's really wonderful, healthy men who are available out there. They roll their eyes at me because that's not been their experience, but that's because that's the fishbowl they decided to jump in. When the water is all around us, that's all we see. We have to swim up to the surface and like be like a little fish trying to breathe some other air to see what else is out there. So I, I encourage people to think about what are the people, places, and things around you? What are you consuming? Um, what conversations are you having? What food are you putting in your body? What chemicals? What, um, you know, Inspire, are you listening to inspiring podcasts? We have this fascinating like um, obsession with like crime and horror in our culture. And I'm, I'm interested, I've been really trying to dive into research and there's some and there's not others, but like how, how this affects us. If you spend all your time watching SVU, what does that mean for your brain, right? So um, those are the things that I, I ask people to look at and say, okay, it's not that you can ever do it, but are you doing it too much? And are you doing it in a way that it blocks you from doing the other things that can move you forward, build muscle in a different way? And, and believe me, I am not I do not preach anything I haven't practiced. And I think a lot of people look at me and sort of roll their eyes like she doesn't drink and she doesn't drink, you know, consume caffeine and she doesn't even have dark chocolate. And I'm like, but the, the reason I do this is because I got to a point in my life where I was so in tune with what felt good and what served me, I could no longer turn a blind eye to the things that I was consuming that were actually hurting me. And in as a consequence of limiting or you know, taking out the things closest to me that weren't serving me, my well-being has like skyrocketed. So that's why I'm so passionate about this. I know it's uncomfortable to change and look at ourselves and it's hard work to do, but the end result, and you guys know this too, because you've achieved, you know, degrees of mastery in, in many areas of your life. It's like a freedom that you want everybody to experience. Why well, we need we need you to follow us around and say that to everyone we're, we ever come in contact with. All of that that um, line of reasoning from start to finish has been like a big part of the foundation of the mindset and lifestyle that Brett and I have individually tried to achieve and also try and speak with so many people about. You made a hundred different really good points. Um, one of my favorite articles, speeches is This Is Water by David Foster Wallace. And it's just a 
funny comment like about the fish swimming along, like not even realizing they're in water. People do not realize how much they set the conditions for their life because they think that it's just passive. It's playing in the background. I'm doing this, I'm doing that, but you're actively choosing to consume all of that, whether that's conscious or unconscious. And it absolutely creates patterns in your life that transcend every single thing you do from the way you think about yourself aesthetically to the way you think about yourself in the context of your relationships, professionally, personally. And if it turns negative um, or pessimistic uh, as a long-term view, it is insidious and it does not let go without a ton of really, really deep work. We've been, um, I've been fascinated by the concept of set and setting, um, not necessarily in a psychedelic medicine administration setting, but more of just what those two things mean. And um, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's it's the when people have psychedelic drugs administered in a clinical setting, it's the mindset of the person having the drugs administered and then the physical and social setting that they're in, which makes sense to anybody that's ever gone out for drinks. That's why bars are a are a hit. Like people like being social and that environment, it's way more fun to drink in, right? It's way more fun to drink when you're at a concert because of the the setting and your mindset influences that. But if you swapped psychedelic drugs for life, it also makes a lot of sense. Like what is your mindset and how does that change the setting that you're in? And then how does your setting influence your mindset? And my question for you, and this might be a little bit chicken or the egg, but presented with the two set or setting, do you normally go after the conditions that people set for themselves as the way that they influence their mindset? Or do you start to think, do you start to attack the problem by way of mindset as it relates to the setting? For instance, like, oh, you're a negative person. This might come from you being around negative people or you might be the negative person influencing the people around you to be negative such that that is now your environment. So how do you think about kind of the two of those things? And obviously they're not mutually exclusive. So how do you think about the two of those things and as they interrelate when you work with a client? Great question. Um, I love talking to you guys. You're such brilliant dudes. <laughs> we could talk to you for an hour. Yeah, amazing. this might last three hours. This might last four hours. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, uh, it's it's a very uh, judici- um, judicial uh, response, but 50-50 because, I mean, the research shows is sort of nature nurture um, and what it and I and I hit both because uh, sometimes in, and I'll use relationships as an example of this. A lot of times people will say, um, I need to be totally right before I call in a relationship. Or we hear that sort of like terminology, like you need to get your stuff together and then you'll call in a relationship. I'm like, eh, nah. I mean, like sometimes that's the case. And plenty of times people meet people in their mess and they create a healthy relationship. So I think the idea that chicken or the egg, I have to get my whole mindset right to then take action. It can also be a way people analyze and paralyze themselves so they don't have to tolerate the discomfort of the action. So I like a little bit of both. I like to be mindful of the set and the setting, the nature and the nurture within you to think about what the mindset is 
um, to dissect all of the thoughts. And that's, it's something that my clients are so used to me asking, like, well, what are you, what, what's the story that you're telling yourself about that? Um, and that is something that I say over and over and over again. And then we also have to get into action because sometimes, as you guys know, with motivation, we are waiting to feel motivated by the thoughts that we're thinking all the time. And in that way, discipline actually trumps uh, motivation. And the more that we move and take action, the more motivated we feel. So we're a, we're a funky little, like, you know, interesting species, right? It's like, we need a carrot dangling in front of us to motivate us to move. And then something happens when we start to move, we just stay in motion. Um, so a little bit of both, right? We, we look at how to change what's around us, how to be, and taking those actions, even when it's uncomfortable and um, not thinking, and this is the other thing, not thinking too much about that, because sometimes I think we think too much. So I don't have a real you know, it's going to look going to look different for everybody, but I think you have to do both. I think you have to think about the context within which you're living your life. And to make those changes, I always say to people, you have to be willing to tolerate a degree of discomfort, a degree of discomfort when you don't go out with the friends you normally did, a degree of discomfort when your friends go into the rabbit hole of talking about how terrible men are. And you say, hey guys, that doesn't, you can totally do what you want to do. It doesn't feel good for me. I'm trying to think about a different mindset when it comes to relationships. The discomfort of changing our patterns is tough. And you talked about fear earlier. One thing that I uh, really want people to understand is men and women experience fear in different ways. Um, women are much more primed to be um, reactive um, and have much more fear-based responses to ex experience fear. I mean, I always use the, use the analogy, like my husband's six seven and 250 pounds. The man does not experience a whole lot of fear physically in his life, right? He's like not running around like I am conscious if someone followed me from the gym. So when we we have to understand that when we're making these changes, we're going to have degrees of discomfort in different ways. Like a woman who is taking, setting boundaries with her friends is likely to experience much greater discomfort because she is much more in general collect, connected to the collective as a way to survive than a man is. This is something that I see all the time when I used to run men's groups and women's groups. Men are much, it's much easier for them to make a decisive action to better their life and cut something out because they're not as reliant on the collective for survival. And that has a lot to do with our fear response. So I went down a different path there, but it's something to be really mindful of when we are making these changes to our settings is to just acknowledge the discomfort. And then there, here's the beautiful thing. When you know it's going to be uncomfortable, then when it's uncomfortable, it's not shocking. It's like, oh yeah, she warned me about this. This is normal. I don't have to turn back and start from square one. I can just keep going. Um, if that makes sense. <laughs> oh, totally. I, 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 I wa definitely want to get back to the, the men versus women thing because we have a bunch of questions on that. Um, but I want to ask you something first and it, it sort of ties in. How do you, and this is, I'm going to like give you a personal anecdote too. So how do you coach people to balance emotional extremes? And I'll give you a, um, I'll give you a, a storyline to follow. So I have two things. I deeply dislike interpersonal conflict and I have, and have traditionally grown up with just the, you know, I want everyone to like me on the, on the other side of that, <laughs> Um, actually connected to that, 
I also have a big fear of falling behind and falling behind in terms of how the people in my circles view me as relative to my peers, um, which is definitely informed by playing sports. It's like an ultra competitive side. You're, you're, um, that same thing with grades and school, everything. Um, how do you, (laughs) how do you balance that when someone's on one end of an emotional extreme to find something in the middle? Because the, the, the opposite of, I want everyone to like me would be, I'm just going to get mine at the expense of everybody else. So then it's finally like, okay, well, if I don't want everyone to like me, then I don't care if anyone likes me, right? You immediately like revert to this other side of the coin where it went from, I want to feel extremely connected to just apathy. And on the other side of, you know, of um, fear of falling behind would be like, I don't want anybody weighing me down. And those two things are definitely connected. Like, I don't want anybody attached to me that is any type of liability. And that is also definitely attached to physical performance in some way, because in my mind, I train myself mentally and physically to not be a liability to anybody else. And I got a massive ego check when two years ago, um, I had a really bad injury to my leg. I uh, tore my hamstring off my hip and it was a major lower leg surgery. My, my left leg will definitely never be the same again. And for a while, when you self-identify as, hey, I am my body, I am what I'm capable of doing physically, it's really difficult when that gets taken away from you. So like, I, I am a person of extremes. And what I'm kind of wondering is how do you coach people to find a balance in between those emotional extremes? And if somebody is on one end of the spectrum, do you have them sort of almost like cast aside all fear and try and work towards the other extreme to find a middle and then stop them? Or do you coach them to always sort of find balance and make little tiny incremental improvements? Because like personally, I go from one end to working towards the other, I'll get there and then I'll slide right back. I'm like, do not do moderation well. (laughs) Yeah, no. And thank you for that example. It's so, and I think the more men can talk about what their fears are, the more we can understand how this shows up differently. Um, so what I want to actually travel back to the beginning and you tell me if this relates for you, but what they find is women are much more motivated by fear because again, we talked about security and the collective and physically in general, not as strong, um, and as men and surviving and all that kind of stuff. But what men will tell you is that they are much more motivated by shame. Shame is shitty for all of us. Nobody likes shame. But women can navigate it in in a little bit better way. And I'll tell you why. So you'll ask a woman and a man what they're most afraid of. And a woman will be like, oh, I'm afraid of, you know, being kidnapped or assaulted or something that takes away her physical security. And a man will say what you just said, which is, I will be irrelevant. Something will happen to my career. Um, I Something about the way in which they are perceived um, related to their purpose and their contribution. And then they'll say, well, aren't you afraid of like, you know, dying or being in a, in a castaway on an Island? Who's like, well, yeah, yeah. But that's not the first thing that comes forward. And obviously ev- there are outliers. This is very, very general terms of what I'm describing, but men find much more 
um, sense of security and what they are doing. And when anything looks like what they are doing is in jeopardy and what they are doing will not be respected, they are at risk of shame. And shame is much more paralyzing for men. So when I help people navigate their whys, what is what is uh, driving their behavior and is it serving them? This is one thing that you'll see a lot with men. They go into this period um, and there's this whole psychological development of men where they talk about various stages where men can hit where they're a page, a knight, a prince, a king. And some men react to that language, but I think it's really important to understand like pages are off, you know, having fun in college, la da da. Knights are banding together and going off on missions and aren't really ready to create a kingdom. They're in the process, they're having adventure. Princes are building up to their kingdom and kingdom doesn't mean monetary or whatever. It means who am I? How am I serving the world? How am I valued for that work? Do I feel a sense of security in that? And I can I can and I'm able to provide for the people around me. So what happens is after pe- men reach this stage of where they've reached what they thought they wanted, they sometimes go through this experience where Alison Armstrong calls it the tunnel, where they are in reflection on were the values that I was letting drive my life the ones to be living by, and they go through this sort of existential crisis many of what does this mean? So an an argument of what you're describing, it shows up different for men and women. But what I ask people to do is have this conversation with ourselves before we have to reach an end point where we say, did I live in alignment with my values? And many of us like to think we're living in alignment with our values. But if you looked at our day in, day out life, we may not. Right. So I would, when people are acting out of extremes, they're usually trying to avoid shame or avoid fear. Right. And that's not wrong. It's okay to want to cope in that way. But what we have to do is say, is my fear or shame driving this or are my values driving this? And, and what I would say to you is, I'm, you know, what is it that you value most? And when that fear of shame kicks in, do the thing where you get curious and say, hey, what would I be doing differently if I was living in alignment with my values? And that will give you the answer for how you can find the middle ground and not the extremes, right? Because you would probably, it's not that you would stop working. You would still want to pursue a degree of excellence. But you, if you value also enjoying the process and living this life, you would then say, yeah, okay, what is, what is success to me? And then not let that be the exterior, the outside world telling you what success means, but what it means to you. And then you can show up in that way. And then every time the world tells you you're not doing enough, you have to fact check it against what you value. So very long answer to your question, but there was a lot in there that I felt like needed to be talked about. No, the shame, the shame thing is really interesting because I don't think many people identify, um, would you identify that as an emotion or a, or a, I guess it's an emotion. Shame yeah, an emotion. I think it's an emotion, but it's an experience that can create a lot of emotion. It can yeah, create I'm, I'm, sadness and not enoughness, and then it can create anger and then it can yeah, create, totally. yeah, so it's that, complicated. And that, yeah. Got it. And that, so the identification of emotion 
like the maybe it's a secondary emotion of shame or the condition of that would would create definitely anger for me for sure and not an like, like not an outward flash of anger but more of just like a I don't know if it's self anger or just like <laughs> disagreeableness with like what's happening what I don't, I don't, yeah right. it's just it's just um but but then on the backside of it it does I I have no problem taking action it's just not not going to the extreme emotionally so I don't have to deal with the consequence of sliding too far in either direction. But I think the definition of shame and identifying by not definition, like what is it, but literally like, I guess, yeah, it's the definition of it, defining that for what that means for you and identifying like, oh, I'm, I'm living in this, this shame bandwidth is really hard for a lot of guys to identify and I don't think that they actually identify that that is the condition of what they're feeling I think that maybe they just yeah Yeah. maybe they just feel like it's failure I think and with failure obviously comes a lot of a lot of shame unless you start to practice which I feel like I've definitely gotten better at you know as we take on a billion different projects and talk different people and you know we've had thousands of coaching hours so I have identified this in other people you can start to see where you fall into that and where that takes shape. And I think it's really hard because I don't think enough men, and this is something that Brett and I have really been actively pushing forward, take the time to, to identify a lot of those emotions. Cause we just overcome them with things like anger or aggression, or we take it out on some other type of distraction rather than fixing that, that shame point it's not even a pain point this is the shame this is the shame point of like where that comes up and why that starts to happen and i think to your point it is really interesting looking at um the men versus women because in the presence of women you definitely don't want to give up any of that vulnerability ground because you because you want the perception and i think a lot of women now are are seems like are overcompensating for some of that fear-based reactivity by being, you know, a, a very like alpha female when yeah. that doesn't actually fit with their personality. And I think yes. it's interesting. And I, I, the, and this is a little bit of a rant, but I don't think, and social media is definitely an aggra- uh, like an aggravator of this, but I, I don't think we have a lot of really vulnerable, safe spaces like we have right now to discuss the overreactions from both sides. It's like nobody's getting nobody's getting a fair shake. So like you don't you're not giving men the space to identify and fix shame and you're not giving women the space to have to work through some of those fear-based reactivities or concerns about their physical security. It's like men and women are different. We don't have to all do the same things. We don't have to all react the same ways. But it's just like there's no safe, fair space to have those discussions. So then you get people overreacting and acting out, and you know I'm not immune. And to expecting that. one to be the other, you know, one of the things that yeah. I talk about is women who expect a man to be a woman, and men who see a woman and don't understand, you know, like it's. I'll give an example. Like I have a startle response that you would not fucking believe. Like I, my husband is the only one in the house and he walks in the kitchen and I scream like there's an intruder and he stares at me like what (laughs) in the world 
is going on with you. And sometimes he gets annoyed um, and not, he's the nicest, best dude on the planet. But what, what's happening there is he doesn't live in my experience of fear. So he can't touch and understand what that's like. So the beautiful thing about like what you talked about, this safe space for understanding is the more we talk about this and we understand the differences, and some of these differences are negligible at birth, talk about set or setting, and they are created in our culture, but they're there nonetheless. So trying to ignore them or trying to, you know, say they're, they don't, they aren't there doesn't serve us. So yeah, I, I think your point about you know, understanding the differences, allowing for them. And when you, and the minute I could say to my husband, Hey, like fear feels different in my body. Like I have a amygdala and a startle response to keep myself safe. Like, are you mad at a deer who startles in a field when something (laughs) walks up to it? No, because that's their survival mechanism. And it's like this light bulb goes on and he gets it. And then he understands that he doesn't experience it. And then I understand that he doesn't experience conversations the same way I do when I'm telling him 5 million details of something and his eyes glaze over and he's like, what the fuck is going on? I understand that his brain functions in a different way. And so we can meet each other without expecting one another to be the other. Um, And the shame piece, just one last final point I want to make about that is, um, you know, the distinguisher of like guilt is I've done something wrong. And we, we talk about guilt, like it's bad. Guilt is good. You need guilt. You need a conscience. Shame is I am something wrong. And that's the fear that I think all of us are operating under. But this fear of like, if I don't produce enough, or if I don't have mastery over this, or I haven't built my kingdom, I will not be enough. Um, is I think what's operating. And I I don't think I articulated that well, but um, I think that's what's driving a lot of men. And it makes perfect sense because that is how they created, you know, security for themselves in their lives. Um, So the more that we have these conversations, and I'll tell you, I have interesting data from my social media. When I talk about personal responsibility, those posts don't do as well. When I talk about, they just don't, we don't want to hear what we have to learn and the ways we have to manage ourselves. when it's like, you know, and these are real things too. Like don't choose people who treat you like shit. Those posts get a million likes. We're like, yeah, it's that fucking jerks off, jerk off's problem. But when I'm like, Hey, are you trustworthy? Because are you sharing what you feel and being honest about it and not pretending to be someone else when you're dating, then people are like, man, I don't want to talk about it. So it is, it is something that needs to be discussed more. Um, learning these things changed my damn life. Like hands down, I have the relationships and the peace that I have in my life because I've learned this over the last 10 years. Um, and so, yeah, it's a thing that no one talks about, but we need to. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let Brett ask you the next question. But the, 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 the funny comment I have to that is, when this you you talked about the uh the abundance the abundance lifestyle like if you just will it to be it just comes it comes to be i feel like the funny relationship advice on that side is like you deserve all these things like you deserve to be loved it's like yes but like have you done something to actually deserve it or are you an asshole because it's not going to come to you unless you do things that actually warrant a fair reaction to that so like i say you deserve the love you give yeah, if you aren't kind, if you aren't compassionate, if you aren't open, how do you think other people are going to respond to you? And it's just like people have a hard time hearing that. They're like, well, I deserve to be this and I deserve to be that. It's like, no, you're an asshole and you deserve 
exactly what comes back to you. You know, hopefully that other person can check their emotional reaction and then can help you change your reaction. Now we get a nice downstream friendship (laughs) from that, you know, but wishful thinking, like, you know, it starts with you. It does start with you. And it starts with taking responsibility for who you are, what you need, what you're thinking, the stories you're telling yourself about other people, communicating honestly about what you need, and then deciding for yourself if based on what someone else has shown you, they're capable of giving you what you need. But yeah, it, the responsibility is first on ourselves. And we're all we're all acting out of our wounds. I mean, believe me, I was definitely, you know, t- 20 years ago acting out of my wounds. And we have to be responsible for ourselves and for saying, because this person hurt me, I can't keep making every person I encounter try to pay that price. And I have to take responsible for my maladaptive behavior. Um, and yeah, it's hard for people to do, but when we do it, we get everything that we want. We get freedom, we get true connection. So it's hard work, but it's totally worth the toll you have to pay to cross that bridge. Yeah, I think the the things I'm pulling out from this are that we have to really own ourselves, our reactions, um, our mindset. And um, I want to dive into uh, the relationship things because you just made a a really interesting point that piggybacks off my relationship with my wife. Um, She has a a fear of spiders. So it's like very similar to how you have that, that reaction. And for years, I always like was like, kind of holding that against her a little bit and be like, Oh, we'll just try to kill it. Like just, just, just do it. And she wouldn't, she couldn't. And, um, you know, it took me time and thought and, you know, putting my ego aside to just be like, well, that's something that she is working on. And that's something that she might never fix, but it's also not on me to try to cure that it's on. It's just, it's something that she has. And so when she says, Brett, can you come kill this spider? instead of me making a joke or light of it, I just go take action. And I think that's been something that has been, I mean, it it seems so little and it Mm -hmm. seems so trivial, but it's it's a thing. And those things add up over time. And I think one thing that I've really done a lot of through self-therapy and self-reflection is being able to identify some of those things that that seem small on the one-off but they add up over time. And so I think a question I would like to, to pose to you is how can we in relationships identify some of those things on the other side of it and make sure that we're aligning our actions so that we are um, kind of creating this synergy? And to caveat that also, I think the hard part about that for me and this, I'm sure you feel this sometimes too, is as a coach, as someone that deals with this stuff all day, you can't just feed into somebody on the other side of a relationship and always be filling up their cup because that isn't good either. Like if somebody says like, you know, if you're, you're in a relationship with somebody that's truly over needy, you can't just say yes to everything. So how do you thread that line? And how do you identify when it's a true real thing that as the other side of the relationship, you need to step up to the plate? Or how do you also thread the line of it's maybe it's something that they need to work on and you need to step back and let them figure it out? Because for me, I, I, I have trouble finding that line um, and I've definitely gotten better at it. And through communication, 
through therapy, through proactive conversation, have been able to figure that out better. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people struggle with that. I, oh my, I, this like, I'm so bad at this. <laughs> so bad. Yeah. I would be like, get dress over there and you kill the damn spider. Figure it out. Well, because you guys, and this is where the first, the first step of understanding the differences goes a long way, right? Because just like women expect men to be women, men can be sitting here looking like, are you just thinking a woman is a dude who's just much more, you know, emotionally dramatic and ridiculous, right? (laughs) And so when you're experiencing a, a woman through the lens of who you are, you're always going to see those differences as wrong. So again, you, you asked, how do we handle this? We understand, and, and whether it's same gender or not, like you're never going to meet someone who shows up to life the way that you do ever. Yep. And, yep. and it's a very um, sort of uh, low vibration point when, and it's sort of that external locus of control when we are expecting the people around us to be like us in order for us to be okay. So what your, your ability to even question this and be aware of it is, is really that maturation process that we all go through as adults, like really recognizing our own responsibility for our happiness and not outsourcing that to someone else, not expecting someone else to always say and do the right thing in order for us, for us to be well. So the first step is to understand the differences. So like when you see that her not wanting to kill the spider is like not wrong, it's just her brain and historically, staying away from spiders served her ancestors, right? <laughs> so she comes from a long line of adapted, brilliant women who stayed the fuck away from spiders and therefore didn't die. Um, so it doesn't make her wrong. And to step into action in a way that shows I am cherishing you in your fear. Because what we all want is to feel secure. It's very difficult to feel love when we are in fear or trigger or reaction. So the more that we can, one, take responsibility for creating security within ourselves, and then two, it's not that we, and you said this point, not that we coach everybody. It's not that we pour from an empty cup. It's not that we do for other people what they need to do for themselves. It's that we are conscious of where they're triggers might be. And we do our best out of a place of love, not to activate that if we don't have to. That's the difference. And believe me, as someone who considers herself healed from codependency, as someone who over-functioned as a way to be enough, as someone who did things for people who didn't want to take responsibility for their lives, that is not what I'm talking about. It's about being saying, hey, first, I'm responsible for me. Because when you don't outsource your happiness, you go about meeting your own needs in the best way that you can. And then when you are in partnership with people, you say, I'm not responsible for your happiness, but in a reciprocal and uh, the, the visual I always like is sort of this water wheel, like you pour into you and then that pours over into them and then that pours over into you. Healthy relationships feel like there is a, it doesn't have to be equal. That's the thing we get caught up on. It can be equitable, not equal. It can show up in different forms and in different ways. Um, So that is how I think people navigate that without becoming responsible for other people. And believe me, like your coach, I don't coach in my relationship. I am present in my relationship. One of the things that I said, I always say, you know, when you are participating in the relationship rather than conducting it, you do not want to be the conductor. 
in your relationship. You want to play your damn flute, play your little trombone, be a part of the orchestra, not try to facilitate. Because you only go to a facilitator when you're going to a therapist or a coach or a teacher. You don't do that in your relationship. So you participate, you say, I feel, you take responsibility for what would feel best. You ask if the other person is willing to meet you there. And, and by being honest about what we need or want, and then thanking people for doing it, we create, you know, the dance of a relationship. It's always a dance. It's, you're always, always a give and a take and a you do this and I do this. And these are, our, are the roles that feel good for us. And if you can't meet me here, I take responsibility for filling it up. And if you can't meet me here, I actually decide I'm not going to be in relationship with you because I really need that. So yeah, it's a, it's a lot there. But these are the things I help people sort of break down and teach them one step at a time. No, that was that was great. I think I, I love you. You do a really good job of giving good analogies, and I think that for me, that's how my brain works. Yeah. So um, that's of that's of a lot of importance. And I think one thing that you said at the end of that, uh, which I think is of super value, is through uh, my personal journey, uh, relationship, business, all of that, through therapy, through self reflection, through meditation, um, I have found that shedding the gratitude when things are done is so important. So for example, whatever my fear of the spider is for my wife, and there's multiple things like that, when she does those things out of her free will or in response to my thing that she would think is absurd in reality, Mm -hmm. um, when I show gratitude for that, um, as opposed to thinking that it's unnecessary, or that it's obvious, or that it's assumed, it serves our relationship so much more. Yeah, so true. I have a perfect example of that. One day, two years into our relationship, um, I was in Michigan with my now husband, and we had had a windstorm. We have a lot of those out here, and there were like these branches that had fallen into the into the lawn. And he had gone into the house to grab something really quick, and I saw these branches, and I was like, "Well, I'm going to go get out and pick them up and." you know, throw them out into the woods. And he came out and he stared at me and he was like, you have no idea like what that action meant to me. Like, and I'm like, I don't because I'm like, what the hell is going on? (laughs) Like, this is a big deal to you. And he's like, it made me feel like we were a team. Thank you. And that, and that is that an acknowledgement um, that really, and it's not like, I don't want to be like Pavlov's dogs. Like we're all a bunch of robots, but that's how we encourage and let people know we most of us, when we're not in our wounds, we want to please the people we love. We want them to feel cherished and loved. We, we just want to make sure that we're feeling like that's reciprocated, but that acknowledgement piece is something that I think a lot of us miss. And it is the glue that will hold your relationship together. When you can see someone in their act of service or in their words of affirmation or in their touch or in when they are meeting your need in a way that you feel it and you re- and you water wheel that back to them and you give them that affirmation like, God, that felt so good. Thank you so much for killing the spider. You're my champion. Or think, you know, it meant the world to me to just watch you like pick up the branch and like be a teammate on our house. Like it changes everything. Yeah. To yeah. Me, how I, do you- I, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I that was a that was a great anecdote, and that was a, a really good um, observation from Brett because I think that I have a hard time um, sh- 
showing gratitude, I think for, for some of those things that I think are just like, I expect, or I assume, but I also think it's like very five love languages that I just, that's not the way that I necessarily receive things. So it's, Ah, it's instead of, instead of identifying, oh, I'm thankful that this was done. It was almost like, I just didn't even attach emotion of gratitude to it because like, I don't really care if it happens or I don't even care if it happens or not. Words are definitely my thing, but um, acts of of service are not. Uh, So if it it. was like, oh, something was done, I didn't, I didn't attach um, an emotion of, or I didn't attach a feeling of gratitude to it because it was like, well, if it didn't happen, it wouldn't bother me. If it does happen, it doesn't bother me. So it's it's just kind of like not, um, not stepping out of my way to say thank you for those things. And, and my, my fa- someone else shows up in their love language. And that's so powerful when we know yeah. when we, then we can receive it as love, even if it's not our, in our nature, but we can say, Oh, her doing that acts of service was actually loving me. Totally. And I think so. So for Brett's thing, say, let's take the, the spider example, and then we can expound it out into a, a bunch of different examples. But I think it is a good one because the spider thing is, is, baked in the brain, but it's both, but it's, but it is irrational at this point, like a house spider, you know, you're not in the middle of a, <laughs> like an Amazon jungle, like the spiders are not going to kill you. So in some way that that fear actually is a little bit irrational. Do you think that if Brett goes to kill the spider and then his wife says, thank you for killing that is Brett then reaffirming her fear base for that by stepping out and going to do that, even though that reaction was like, Hey, I'm on your team. I'll go kill the spider. Brett said, she says, thank you to Brett. That just kind of like, you know, moves her further away from actually dealing with that fear because she doesn't have to do anything for it. She might say, thank you. She might recognize that Brett's doing something to help her, but, but then Brett would be being the, or the conductor. Yeah. And, or she doesn't ever change that behavior. And like, let's take this out for a lot of things like, Oh, I don't do this chore. I don't do X, Y, Z, or, Oh, I, that's not the way that I operate. Like, Oh my, my husband or my wife does this. And then you might find yourself in a situation where those people are not there. And all of a sudden you have an inability to handle that. Like if Brett's wife's in the house and there's four spiders around and Brett's not there, like, well, what happens? Well, we never dealt with the fear because Brett always did it. And now I find myself alone and having to deal with this, but I, I, I actually have never confronted that. So how do you sort of balance, like, do you think that people should, like that men should deal with the, the shame thing, women should deal with the fear-based reactivity, physical security, like, do you think they should do something about that? Because it kind of brings me back to Brett's last question is like, how do you balance saying this is something that you should handle on your own? I'm going to express gratitude that you've actually taken a step to do that. But do you think we should fight as men and women, those weaknesses and try to improve them before good, we kind of question. Like handle the team dynamic? Because it's like, you know, we could talk about this for anything. Like I, I'm the, I'm the more of the perfectionist Brett's, Brett's more of the gas pedal. Like, should I always encourage Brett to like review his work a ton more times before just pushing it out? And should Brett always push me to go faster? Or do you kind of say, this is what you're good at. This is what I'm good at. And sort of figure out the team dynamic. Cause like there is a, a level of like personal responsibility. And then there's a level of like, well, if I'm interdependent, this will actually get more done. Yeah. 
No, perfect question. And my answer might be simple, but I think it's the most effective if you want to be happy, is that when you are in your head and either side saying, you need to learn how to do this for your betterment as a human being and your evolution, then you are being the conductor of the orchestra, not playing your tuba. So we, and I think this might be, you know, on our call, I'd be interested to hear like someone who isn't a teacher or a coach or, or, a, coach or a trainer in their life. This tends to be something that happens in people who help people elevate and make changes is that we that's what I was talking about. We end up unconsciously doing that in our relationships. So what I think we need to do to have the healthiest relationships is not try to conduct someone, not try to get someone to play a note they're not playing, to say, I'm in this relationship with you. It's not my job to nudge you around. And like men will say, you need to battle that fear. And women will be like, you need to be in your emotions more. And you need to learn how to verbalize your vulnerability <laughs> and like and then all that happens is we leave the relationship yeah. and we break the heart connection and we go into our head and nobody fucking loves anybody in their head yeah. nobody so we have to stop trying to get people to be where we think they should be um and because that is uh arrogant in a way to expect that we know and i had to learn this believe me Okay, like no more therapist teacher in her relationships for Tiffany, because that doesn't make anybody happy. Um, and then I'm not being fully present because I'm sort of in this one up power differential when I'm in that place, right? So what we have to do is we have to say, it's not my job to teach you. It's my job to love you on both sides. And I have to be responsible enough for myself to say, is the way that this person shows up something I can accept or reject? That's your only two choices. You don't have the choice to teach them a lesson and help them, you know, really activate their fear of the spider and like face it. No, if they want to do that on their own, great. But you facilitating it is not, you're not in the relationship, you're above it. So I know that that seems counterintuitive. You can do that with the people who hire you to do that, but we can't do that with our sisters, our brothers. If we want to affect change in people, the only choice we have is to say how what we're experiencing makes us feel. I am feeling frustrated. I am feeling, you know, taken advantage of, and that might not be your intention, but this is what's going on for me. And then we see how that person's able to pivot or meet us. And then we make a choice is the way they show up enough for me to continue in this or not. And that's why dating is so damn important. And we all want to like bypass this time and take it fast because we want this whirlwind, but really getting to know how someone shows up and what their pain points are and what their love languages are. And if that's a, 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 a fit for us, and if we can let them be what they are and not be the things that they aren't, and that's okay. So I know that's not like a great answer, but I think no, we have to let people. I think that's the really good answer. We have to let people yeah. be who they're going to be, and we have to stop trying to make them be something that they're not. And we have to I agree just 100%. accept it. Percent, not and good. I at think that. that that is even harder for men. somebody that's in our shoes as a coach because yeah, and it's harder for men. Men are solution day. focused. Men want yeah. if you, if you, a woman brings her problem to a man. And she's like, well, this so-and-so made me feel this way. And I don't, I don't say that voice in a way that makes us seem silly, but it's real for women. But men will be like, well, do this. Don't talk to her anymore. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. and- uh, it's insane. I, it, it, yeah. I got interviewed yesterday and somebody asked me, he was like, 
the, the guy that was interviewing me said, why do you do what you do? And I said, if I even find the littlest bit of untapped potential in somebody, it lights me up to freaking get in there and get someone to go do it. And that is, that is, it, 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 does, it doesn't stop at people who pay you. <laughs> and that is, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's, uh, it's something I am not good at, but honestly, Brett had, had like pushed me towards, um, we, me, Brett, and uh, Ryland, who's our third team member, who you would absolutely love chatting with. Also, um, we have a lot of like great talks on our retreats and when we get to hang out. And um, Brett has like you, Brett. I feel like you started to make strides towards that well before I ever have. That <laughs> is uh, absolutely something I'm currently personally working on. Yeah, I think that what you just said, Tiffany, is something I'm going to have to replay a few times after this because I think. It's so important and, and, and to the point of dating, it, you have to and – I, and I think we are – I don't know if it's a culture or whatever. I think we're rushed into love mm-hmm. um, because what you just said is something that everybody needs to figure out within themselves before they go into a relationship all in because if you don't accept the person for who they really are, like every single thing about them. If you expect anything to change on your accord, you're setting yourself up for failure. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that and I've been I've been the I've been the key player in that for years in the beginning of my relationship and I still do it to this day. Yeah. And I have to check myself at the door and I have to say I'm not your coach, I'm not your trainer. I can't expect you to do this because I love you for who you are. Yeah. And um is that easy to do? No. Do I mess that up? Every day I mess it up. Every single day I say something or do something that to what you just said wouldn't fit into that exactly how it should. So I think it's it's a constant, you know, thing I'm working on and a constant thing I think all coaches have to work on. Um, and that's not just coaches, it's everybody want because I think where it stems from. It's not it's for me, it doesn't stem from a place of I want my wife or my brothers or Jason to, to be like me. It's that I see, and, and I, and the tough part is we also know through data and through analytics and through helping people where you can help somebody actually improve. It's hard to not implement that with somebody, right? Like if I see my brother not working out or working out incorrectly, it's really hard for me to him walk up to him and say, you should do it this way when I'm not, he's not paying me to do that. Same with my wife or same with my parents. It's just like, it's hard when you know what's right. Um, but like you said, you have to love that person for who they are. And if they want to seek out that journey, you can help facilitate that journey, but you can't be the one administering it. No, no lone ranger of solving problems. My therapist said that to me 15 years ago. She's like, oh, so lone ranger Tiffany is, you know, flying into town and fixing everybody's problems, huh? Do you have your cape on? Do you have, you know, and I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. And and 100%, it's the acceptance of people where they are. It's tolerating our discomfort when people don't behave in the ways we think they should. And this is the thing that I've learned. It's fact, it's checking on the story that we know best. Because I will tell you, 
I mean, I've been at this for a long time and I've worked with people who have experienced enormous discomfort and suffering and hardship. And I had to check my story that, that their life path was somehow wrong because it isn't. And if we, and this goes to a different value of like people's experience in this lifetime and the experience that they're right where they're supposed to be and they're learning their own curriculum and who am I to say what their curriculum is. And also they're just the science of change. Like um, none of the research says if you pop in and tell your best friend what to do, she will change. (laughs) Like it doesn't work. All that actually happens is they're like, screw you. I don't like being told what to do. And it sort of makes a lot of people just want to do the opposite. So it's not effective. And we're doing it many times to alleviate our own anxiety because we don't like to see people suffer unnecessarily. And we're also doing it um, sometimes because we feel so good. We want what uh, other people to feel that. But we are then, when we are trying to conduct their orchestra, when we are trying to tell them what to do, we aren't respecting their personal life path and their ability to, if they wanted to, or they got uncomfortable enough to change it for themselves. So this has been a huge spiritual, this topic is hard and especially for helpers. Um, But it's been a huge spiritual awakening for me that I think one of the things that I've come to learn, especially this year is saying like, allowing people suffer the consequences of their choices or allowing or people to feel the path that they're on is one of the hardest things we have to witness. Letting people be in their own life and be responsible for it is really tough, but it's necessary. And it communicates respect. It says, hey, I trust you and love you enough to know what's right for you and you will find your way. So learning that I didn't know what was best for everybody was a really hard pill to swallow. But I realized for me, I was doing it because then if if the people I love would just take care of themselves, I didn't have to feel so anxious for them. And that was my own selfishness, right? And also wanting them to be well. Yeah. So I feel you guys. I feel you. It's hard. But it's yeah, so much more great... to be in my relationship and not try to be driving it. Yeah. I think this has been uh... – this is a good conversation for probably all three of us to just be having. Um, And, uh, and I just thank you so much for it. We, we ask every single person that comes on the podcast and um, you can take the current pandemic out of this equation. But if you, our motto is to have the best day ever, every single day. We don't say that lightly. It's not a joke, but it's essentially aligning yourself with your values and your actions so that, you can create that for yourself, regardless of the scenario, right? You're placed in your house right now during this time. You have to make the best of it. You get cut off in traffic. You can either get pissed or just let that pass like a thought during meditation. And we always think that we have the, the opportunity to, to move on from whatever is presented to us. So if you could wake up tomorrow, anything you want to do in the world um, to have the best day ever, what does Tiffany's best day ever look like? Great question. I love it. Um, And my best day ever has now become different because I've really done the research to see what makes me happy. And it's small things. It is so small. It's like, um, you know, waking up and a great class, like a fun dance class or a great luxurious yoga class. And it's a bath and it's hanging out with my family and cooking dinner and holding my niece and running around the backyard and playing with my dogs and 
twinkle lights on the porch and like green juice at night. Like it's so very simple. Um, nothing, nothing, you know, expensive or adventurous, just people that I love nature and that's about it. That's amazing. I, I love that. I love when, when the responses are of that simple because I think that's people that have taken time to really figure out what it is yeah. that they want to do. Um, before we get into kind of final remarks, where can people find you? Where can people find out about you, whether it's social media or they want to be coached or anything like that or your book as well? I'm on TiffanyLouise.com and Tiffany.Louise on Instagram. My book is available. Um, some Barnes and Noble stores still have it, um, in stock and then it's online at Barnes and Noble, Amazon and Target. And it's called this year. I will, um, a 52 week guided journal to achieve your goals. It's really like a a way to map out a lot of what we talked about today. What do you value? What do you want to create? What's in your way? How can you support yourself? Um, it's a very simple, repetitive book to sort of build those muscles. Amazing. Yeah. And if you could give one final anecdote, piece of advice, I think we we touched on a lot here, but kind of like a, a little bit of a closing remark um, to the audience. And this can be geared around the current situation or around anything we talked about. What What's kind of the, the send off you'd like to, to leave people with? I think what we talked about and what it relates to the as uh, as it relates to the pandemic is this is I think bringing things to the surface. I always believe that the the wave that crashes on our shore is the one we're meant to address at that time. And whatever's coming up for you right now is perfect and it's meant for you when and and the more that we can turn to ourselves with curiosity, with compassion, with interest and un, and get curious what's happening, what's going on, what are the thoughts I'm thinking and then ask ourselves if we're if we're going to serve us that it, it doesn't, it's not this dramatic aha moment that I think we're all chasing. It's sometimes just that simple turning to ourselves over and over and over again that changes our life. So whatever's happening for you right now um, and not make the best of it or use this time, but in a more gentle, gentle way, meet yourself right now and see what your life is teaching you. And I think we can come out of this with some, some grace and some learning that we didn't have before. I agree so much. And we want to just thank you for your time, your knowledge, your compassion, your uh, coaching session for Jason and I (laughs) during this call. Um, And uh, Tiffany, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. And we just hope that uh, we can continue to spread your message because it's of so much value. um, And we wish you the best day ever. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Tiffany.